Good morning. How are you all? Well, good. Good to hear. We did have a very good time in our adventure to the Philippines for a month. We were able to visit several of the saints that we had spent uh, many years with, and it was a great encouragement to see them going on for the Lord and uh, and the assemblies growing and maturing in their faith, and that was a, quite an exciting thing for us to see, to be able to get up to the mountains once again and to see those folks up there just carrying on for the Lord and expanding the work. It's just an exciting thing to see. And it was, it was good for us as well to have that time with the missionary community, to be able to, to teach them and to have a time with them as well, to see what the Lord was doing in several different areas of the Philippines. Because at that missionary retreat, all the CMML missionaries, CMPI missionaries that are serving on all the different islands in the Philippines all congregate in this one spot for a week of retreat. And it was a delight to hear what the Lord was doing and is doing in the lives of, of so many of them. And uh, so we were blessed and encouraged. Um, Joyce, of course, got sick on the way home. She was actually infected before she left, I believe. Uh, she had to have been uh, bit by the mosquito before we left the Philippines. So she was quite sick on the plane, although at the time we didn't realize what was going on until after we got back and then discovered that she had the dengue fever and... Uh, which is a very serious illness, but we're thankful to the Lord that she's, her case was fairly mild. She was able to get through it. It's easy to say it's mild from, from here, you know, but she's still struggling with it. She still is sore. She still, it's also called break bone fever because your joints become so painful that it's hard to walk. It's hard to move. It's hard to, her hands were all swollen and her ankles were all swollen. And so she still has some of that residual pain from that and her energy levels aren't quite up to what they, normally are, and so uh, continue to pray for her, but she is well on the way to being, to being uh, back to her normal self again, whatever, whatever normal is, you know, what? And it's not, and it's not, never is contagious, that's the thing about it, the only way you can get it is if a mosquito that bites her bites you, and it can only happen in that first two, two or three day period of time, and so she's never been contagious, so that was an important thing for people to know as well. Uh, so she didn't come out and contaminate you all, and you're all going to have dengue fever next week. It just won't be that way. Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 24. Now, you will remember that over the course of our last couple of times together, we have been in the Gospel of Luke. As I told you, I've been going through my own, my own personal study of the gospel according to Luke, and I've been looking at certain things, although we aren't going to be necessarily concentrating on those things this morning. Last time we were looking at the rich man and Lazarus and, and the, uh, the story that was there in this narrative. And now we, I, I am at the end of this study, and so we are at the end of this study. So we will be looking at chapter 24 this morning in a very, very familiar story to all of us. Let's read it. We're going to begin reading at verse 13 of Luke 24. Verse 13, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. 
And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of those whose name was Cleophas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the Scripture to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, And found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, once again we acknowledge before you, the awesome responsibility of handling Your Word. And so, Father, we ask that Your Spirit would be the one who moves in our hearts. That Your Spirit might be the one who takes Your Word and applies it to our lives and teaches us and may it be for the glory of Thy Son. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. The Word of God is quite extraordinary, isn't it? The Word of God is quite extraordinary. It can crush you. The Spirit of God can take the words of God and crush you. And then the Word of God can lift you up out of the ash heap and restore you. As the Spirit of God takes His Word and uses it in the hearts of men and women. It can bring great insight to you concerning the things of life. Concerning the things of God. It can bring you great insight 
And yet it can cause you to realize your lack of ability to comprehend. It can lift your spirit in times of distress. And at other times it can cause your haughty heart to sink into reflection of your own sinful character. Has it done these things in your life? Has it done these things in your life? It can bring joy and warmth to a sagging heart as the Spirit of God takes His Word and applies it to our life's situation. And it can bring brokenness to a contrite man. It can break you as the Spirit of God takes His Word and speaks it to your heart. It tells a story in which God talks. It tells a story in which the transcendent God, who is above culture, who is above all things, above time and space, the great and mighty God talks to man, speaks to us through the pages of His precious Word. It speaks of wrath. It speaks of judgment that is to come, that brings fear into the heart of men. And it speaks of restoration and forgiveness that is found in the grace of God toward man. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? The Word of God is remarkable. It can bring fear and it can bring hope. And it can bring life out of death. As the Spirit of God takes His Word and applies it to the hearts of men. How many of you, being discouraged, have turned to the Psalms in times of discouragement and have read the words and had the Spirit of God lift your drooping spirit? How many of you? I'm not looking for raising of hands necessarily, although my wife raised hers. We've turned to Ephesians and remembered that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus our Lord. And our spirits are lifted by the Word of God. How many have been convicted and brought low to the point of brokenness when you least expected it? You went to the Word one morning and you were reading through the Word. Just doing your regular daily reading through the Word. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and punches you in the chest with it and breaks you and makes you realize, just makes you realize who you are. You've been there? You've been there? How many times it has broken us How many times our hearts have been filled with hope by reading its promises? And how many times the tears have flowed as we saw and experienced the love of our Lord for such undeserving sinners like you and I? It's a remarkable book. It's a remarkable book. And the Word of God is still living and active and is still sharper than any two-edged sword. 
And it is still piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And is still able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It does its work. It does its work. As we are yielded to the Spirit of God. As we are yielded to the Spirit of God. And walking in the Spirit as we've been learning. The Spirit of God uses His Word to drive home to our hearts. Sometimes to exhort us. Sometimes to encourage us. Sometimes to instruct us. Other times to just simply reveal Himself to you. Quite extraordinary what the Word of God does. About 40% of the Word of God is narrative. That's interesting, isn't it? About 40% of the Word of God is narrative. And what do I mean by that? It's stories. Stories. Stories by which God reveals to us His character and His personhood. Stories by which He weaves in the plan of redemption. Stories. Genesis. Exodus. Numbers. Deuteronomy. Joshua. Judges. Ruth. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and on and on, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and even Job, although it's in poetic form, they are stories, biographies, autobiographies of men and women who learned of God walked with God and men and women who learned of God and turned away from God. Both stories are told. Both stories are told. And these biographies and these autobiographies are not complete, are they? Sometimes we wish they were, but the volume would be so big. Can you imagine? But they're not complete autobiographies of these individuals. Not complete biographies of these individuals, but they are mere sketches of the life of men, sketches of the life of women, and how God used their life for His glory and purposes. Weaving in among that, weaving in among all those narratives, as well as all those doctrinal teachings, Bringing us the plan of redemption. They all deal with, in one way or another, God bringing about His plan and His purpose for the redeeming and saving of mankind. All leading to that one great story of a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I, I keep saying that, but as, a, as you think about the Word of God and you think about the power of the Word of God, the Scriptures from beginning to end are leading us to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of history from the beginning of Genesis all the way through until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ is eschatological in the sense that it's, it's looking forward. 
And now we've come to the point where the Lord Jesus Christ has come and everything looks back. But it all looks back to that central point in history where the Son of God gave Himself a ransom for you and I. Beautiful, beautiful story that we find in the Word of God. In our narrative this morning that we read, in our narrative, we are looking at what is the fourth appearance of our Lord after His resurrection. This is the fourth appearance of our Lord as portrayed in the Gospels. Tracing the Gospel accounts, when you begin to trace the Gospel accounts of the resurrection and the appearances of our Lord Jesus Christ, it can become rather confusing. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone and tried to take all the Gospel accounts and the, and the portions in, in the book of Acts and then tried to weave them together to see the chronological way in which the Lord appeared. Because sometimes they seem almost contradictory. Sometimes they seem very confusing to, to understand. I have found that John Wehams outlined in his book The Easter Enigma to be helpful. And I've copied it here and I have it here on, on an overhead for you to look at. I also have hard copies of this right here. If you want a hard copy later on, you can come and see me for a hard copy. But look at these are, this lists the appearances of our Lord. This lists the resurrection accounts. You see from number one, we see the, that the angel rolls the stone away before sunset. The guards are seized with fear. And then the women visit the tomb. And then you have Mary Magdalene leaving to tell Peter. And on and on and on. till you get to number six and Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb. And Christ appears to her. And that is the first appearance, post-resurrection appearance, of our Lord Jesus Christ to anyone. And He appears to Mary Magdalene. And then you can go on to seven. And Jesus appears to the other women. That's His second appearance. And then you see that in number number nine, Jesus appears to Peter. That's His third appearance. And then Jesus appears to Cleophas and His companion on the Emmaus Road. And that is His fourth appearance. And then there's the fifth appearance where He appears to the ten disciples without Thomas. Then the sixth appearance when Thomas is there among them. And so on and so on. Down to the ninth and tenth and eleventh Appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go through in detail all of these, nor do I need to read them because all of you are perfectly capable of reading. And so, if you would like a copy of this, I made up some copies. There are a limited amount of copies, but I made up some copies and it is quite helpful to take, fold, and put into your Bible. So that one time when you're reading through the Gospel accounts and you come to the resurrection, you say, well, well wait a second, I thought... I thought he appeared to Simon. Well, wait a second, but it says here that he appeared to This will help you to put it all in a chronological order for yourself. So you can take that down. Thank you, Josh. So the Lord Jesus Christ, now in our narrative, this is the fourth appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this appearance before us this morning, we find some very interesting and very instructive things for us and exhortations that lie just below the surface, if you will, of the storyline. So let's do an overview of this narrative. And this overview of this narrative will probably take us these two weeks. So we'll see how well we do today and then we'll move forward from there next week. Sometimes, you know, you... You, you, you plan for two weeks and you end up using it all in the first week. Um, that's not likely to happen in this, in this narrative. So let's move through this narrative and see what things we can learn from this uh, overview. 
Now, we, one thing we remember and recognize and saw from the story as we read it, that Jesus walks seven miles with these two individuals. Now, whether, these, whether this is Cleophas and his wife, that is sometimes debated. They think that maybe this was Cleophas and his wife, so it would have been a husband and wife that were traveling along. But Jesus joins with them and walks with them seven miles. Now, how long does it take you to walk seven miles? A couple of hours, maybe? Two and a half hours, maybe? They had the presence of the Lord with them, teaching them for two and a half to three hours, depending on how often they paused along the way. You know, because oftentimes when... I don't know about you, but when I'm talking with someone and we get into a point, I can't walk and talk at the same time. I have to stop and I have to look and I have to talk. And so there's pauses along the way, I'm sure. But for at least two and a half to three hours, the Lord Jesus Christ has the attention of these two of his disciples. The Lord walks with you. Does he not? Does the Lord ever leave you alone? Does he ever forsake you? Does he ever walk with you just a couple of miles and say, okay, now you're on your own. I'm going away and good luck with the rest of the day. No, he is always walking beside you and he's always walking with me. And he desires to teach us and he desires to train us. He desires to grow us in the things concerning Himself and in the things concerning His Father. He desires us to be growing Christians. Right? Right? He desires to grow us. And by the Spirit, He will take His Word and apply it to our lives and grow us. But there was one thing that the disciples on this seven-mile jaunt needed to do, and that was... Pay attention. Right? They had to pay attention to what he was saying. Oftentimes, that's our downfall, isn't it? We get into the Word of God and within 15 minutes, our minds are wandering every which way. Thinking of all the things we need to do during the day. Thinking of going to bed at night. Thinking of whatever it is that you're occupied. Is it not true with you as it is with me, that we really must make an effort to keep our concentration when we're studying and reading the Word of God? But the Lord is there. He's walking with you. And He's teaching you. And He's training you. Even with our very limited attention spans. Attention spans have gotten really short, by the way. It's a discipline for our lives. A discipline. Now these are two very distraught, discouraged, and confused disciples. They're very... The things that they expected hadn't happened. They're very discouraged. They're very confused as they're walking along. And we recognize from the account that we read that this is still that first day of the week. The resurrection appearance, the first appearance, happened that morning. Right? 
The ladies, the women had gone to the tomb that morning and had seen the stone rolled away. They came with their spices to anoint the body and they didn't find the body. They didn't see the Lord. They went back first, as you remember, to tell the disciples that the body is gone. But we saw angels. And the angels told us, and Scripture says they, they, the disciples, and I'm sure it was the men among them, said, oh, just idle chatter. Those women, you know, they were so worked up. They were so worked up and so emotional that they thought they saw something they didn't see and it's just idle chatter. That's what they call it. Idle chatter. And they did not believe. They did not believe. Would you have? I don't know. I don't know. We'd like to say, oh, yes, of course, I would have believed The fact of the matter is our hearts are just like their hearts. Show me. I want to see it for myself. So this is the first day of the week. And then the narrative begins. It says, now behold, two of them. Two of them. And the of them, of course, connects it to the passage just before. All those other disciples, along with the eleven that were met together, They were a part of that with the women and with all the group. They were a part of that group that was in the room early. When the women went and came and returned, they were there. They heard it. They were a part of that group. Now behold, that's an imperative, by the way, and it's for our attention. It's not for their attention. It's 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 a device in the narrative to say, okay, listen up. Listen up to what I'm going to tell you now. Behold, there were two of them. Now, is that significant? Is the idea of two of them significant? Well, I don't like to push the point too much. I think it's, it's, it's just a narrative account, but yet we recognize from the Old Testament Scripture and into the New Testament Scripture, even when you get into the uh, into 1 Corinthians, that it's by the witness of two or three that a thing is established. By the witness of two or three, a thing is established. It was part of the law. We're still in that period of time, aren't we? And there were two of them to verify the story between them. Now, again, that might be pressing the issue a bit much, in the narrative that's before us, but we recognize that there were these two, two of them, that were walking along the way, who were group of, who are part of that group of the rest that we find in verse nine, to whom the women had shared what they had experienced. Now you turn back to to Mark chapter sixteen, and the account at the end of Mark chapter sixteen, because this is important for us in in relationship to to uh, the narrative before us. Luke, let's go back to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And let's read from verse 9. Now he rose early on the first day of the week. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those uh, who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. They did not believe. Verse 12. And after that he appeared to another. It appeared in another form to the two of them as they walked and went into the country. 
And they went and told it to the rest, and they did not believe them either. You see, this is, this is uh, interesting because when you get into the account, you're going to find out that by the time these guys get back, they're saying, Simon has seen him. And there was this sense of belief that was beginning to creep in to the understanding of the disciples of all that had been transpiring. But we'll leave that for now. So, now behold, he said, two of them were traveling that same day, that same day to a village called Emmaus. Now you remember from our last studies that I emphasized on several occasions that from chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke, on through this time, it is always picturing the Lord Jesus as He is journeying toward Jerusalem. It's always depicting the Lord Jesus Christ as traveling to Jerusalem, which means in our understanding that all of this narrative is to be taken in light of where He is going and what He is going to accomplish at Jerusalem. Everything now is to be seen in light of Him heading toward Jerusalem. This story is the very first account from chapter 9, verse 51, where there are people moving away from Jerusalem. Moving away from Jerusalem. The first account. Before, everything was seen as Christ moving toward Jerusalem. Toward that week of passion when He would give His life for the world. And now, after that has been accomplished, and He has risen from the dead, these ones who have not yet seen, not yet understood, not yet comprehended all that the Scripture has said concerning Him were leaving Jerusalem and walking away. That's significant, narratively speaking. That's significant. They were moving away. They had not believed the testimony of the women. And the party of disciples were somewhat divided now. There was some fear that was beginning to mount. And some like these were leaving Jerusalem, heading home. Drifting, as it were, away from their high hopes, away from the fellowship of like-minded disciples, of all those who were confused and lacking revelation. They were moving away. We won't say any more on that account. They're moving away from those dangers as well. Were the disciples fearful in the upper room? Were they fearful that the one, the government, their own leaders who had rounded up Jesus would not soon look for them too? If they saw Jesus as one who was inciting an insurrection, one who is inciting a riot in order to put himself on the throne, would they not look also at the other treasonous members of that group to bring them also? There was fear. There was fear among them. Yet here they are walking. And it says in verse 14, And they talked together 
of all these things that had happened. They talked together. And that's an imperfect tense in the original. And the imperfect tense has the idea that it's an action that has begun, but it has not stopped. It has not been completed. They were, they kept on talking to one another. They kept on speaking to one another. These discouraged ones, these discouraged disciples, kept on talking, kept on conversing with one another. And their conversation was about that which had happened. That which had happened. Now, that's a perfect tense. And what is that telling us? That perfect tense is telling us that that was a completed action in the past. The completed action of the week of passion that was done, but the effects of that are continuing on right into the present time. It wasn't like it's done deal, okay, we need to forget about that and move on. The effect of what they were discussing was continuing on into their present thinking. So they were thinking about what is the context. The context certainly would lead us to believe that what they were thinking about and what they were conversing about had to do with the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That was all that had transpired in the week that preceded this time. They had gone to Jerusalem with high anticipation. They had gone to Jerusalem and probably were there among the company that saw Jesus ride into the city on that on that donkey, the colt. They'd seen and heard the voices crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! They saw them laying their coats down and the branches down as the colt came into the city. And here was a confirmation that He is the King presenting Himself as the King, the rightful heir to the throne of David. Coming in. To the city. But the context can also move beyond that. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the context here can go back weeks, months, years to all that they had learned, all that they had heard, all that they had seen in the miraculous things that the Lord Jesus Christ had done, which was confirming to their hearts that this was indeed Messiah. He was fulfilling all of these things. He was that prophet that they had spoken of. Like unto Moses, that prophet, the Messiah, who was to come. They had heard Him teach. That teaching had changed their thinking. Hadn't it? It had changed their thinking and they were excited and they were full of hope from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those things that had transpired. And they talked. And they reasoned together, it says. So while they talked and reasoned, while they were talking and reasoning, And reasoning really is a word that has this idea of of more of a debate kind of thing. It has this idea of, you know, this was more of a a conversation that was pitting knowledge against knowledge. What did did we think was going to happen? How did we think he was going to do it? Well, I think he was raising up to be the king. I think he was going to overthrow Rome. But I don't think so. I don't think the time was yet. I think there was a plan, but a purpose, but it got thwarted. And they were debating back and forth. 
conversing over the things that had taken place. And they were reasoning one with another. And then this dialogue begins in verse in verse, uh, oh, where does the dialogue begin? Verse 17. It says that Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained and they did not know him. This is likely, although, I, again, this is one of those things I would not press too far. But it is likely that this is what is often called in biblical studies the divine passive. Because it's a passive, but it doesn't, it doesn't show which character this verb goes to. So it's a passive in the sense that it is God Himself who caused the restraining of their eyes. God caused it so they could not see. I remember my dad one time as we were discussing some of these things. He said, he asked this question. He said, do you suppose that the Lord had been so brutalized that they didn't recognize him? Could it have been that he was, because Isaiah 52 certainly tells us that his visage, his face was marred more than any man. His likeness did not even look like a man's anymore. Is it possible that that is the reason they did not recognize this one who came with them because his face had been so marred. Does he bear the, does he bear the scars of Calvary? Does he bear the scars of Calvary? Yes, he does. Does he bear them on his face? Does he bear them on where the thorns pressed in? Uh, he, he bears them in his hands and his feet for sure. But again, it appears from the the way in which this is written that it is God Himself who restrained their eyes so they could not see. They could not recognize who indeed this companion was that joined with them. So they did not know Him. So He joined with them and it says their eyes were restrained so they did not know Him. And that is that little little word epigenosis, and it has this idea of, the, of a full comprehension of things, a full understanding of things. They saw him, they recognized him as an individual, a man who was joining company with them, which was a very cultural thing, by the way. It wouldn't be like us walking somewhere, we're on a walk, and all of a sudden somebody comes up alongside you and, and says, hey, how you doing? We're going to walk with you for next seven miles. And for us, it would be like, uh, come on, leave me alone, will you? What are you doing? Get away from me, man. Leave me alone. Culturally, they always joined together as they traveled for protection, for safety as they went along. They would gather together and travel together. And so it wouldn't have been unusual for someone to join company with them as they walked along. And they were probably happy for the company. And so this, this man comes along and he joins with their company and they did not fully comprehend who indeed this was in their company. Have we learned have we learned to recognize the voice 
of our Savior. My sheep hear my voice, and they recognize it. They know me. Have we become close enough and intimate enough with our Lord over the years and years that you've walked with Him that you begin to recognize His voice apart from other voices? And sometimes when you hear a voice that teaches something and all of a sudden a red flag goes up in your mind and you say, that didn't sound right. You know why? Because it probably wasn't right. Have you learned to recognize the voice of your Savior as the Spirit teaches you through His Word? Recognizing the sound of his voice. But they did not comprehend who it was that was with them. Their eyes were held. Then the dialogue begins. And the Lord Jesus says to them, asks them, what kind of conversation is this that you're having with one another as you walk along? And I noticed your countenance is very sad. You're walking along and you're, you're, you're sad. Usually people coming home from the feast, coming home from the Passover, they're rejoicing. They just had a wonderful time with family and friends in in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're coming home and they're rejoicing along the way. And you folks are coming along and you're, you're, you're talking. And I can see this conversation is really animated. And you are sad. What's the matter? What's going on? And I can hear Cleophas in my mind's ear. Can you, can you have a mind's ear? I can hear him saying in a fairly sarcastic tone, are, are you a, the only person in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened this week? I mean, where you been, buddy? Where you been? Didn't you see? The whole city was in an uproar, wasn't it? The whole city was in an uproar. It disrupted the whole service and celebration of our Passover. They took this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and they nailed him to a cross. Where have you been? What's up with you, bud? Where have you been? Did these things not trouble you? Did it not bother you? Where have you been? How could you possibly have been in Jerusalem this Passover and not know what happened? Are you the only stranger, he said, in Jerusalem? And you have not known the things which happened in these days? They were walking home, as it were, from a funeral. In their mind's eye, wasn't it? They're walking home from a funeral. A funeral of a dear friend. A funeral from the one who was even more than a friend. They saw him as a prophet. They saw him as the one who was going to redeem Israel. They saw him as the Messiah. And he's gone. And they're walking home with their faces sorrowful. There was a great sense of loss and grief that was filling their heart. This is the one whom they had grown to love and respect. The one they thought they were going to be a part of a kingdom that was coming in. And don't you love the way the omniscient God, because remember that's who our Lord Jesus Christ is, right? 
He is the omniscient God who knows all things. And how does he respond to Cleophas? What things? Tell me, Cleophas, what, what things are you talking about specifically? What, what are you talking about? Well, the things of Jesus of Nazareth. Of course. And you know, that title is interesting in, in and of itself. If you remember, if you remember that when the Lord began His ministry in Nazareth, one of the first things that He did was going into the synagogue, remember, and taking the scroll and reading from the scroll in the synagogue in Nazareth. And as He read those familiar words, talking about the power, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. He has sent me to... to uh, heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he sat down. This day, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he began his public ministry. Jesus of Nazareth. The one filled with power and might. By the Spirit of God. And he began his ministry. Things that had happened from those years on. You see, they accepted him as a prophet. As we mentioned, they accepted him as this this prophet that was to come. That Moses spoke of. A prophet like unto Moses. And the revelation of the Son of God is more than simply that of another prophet. Was he a prophet? Absolutely. He was a prophet, priest, and king. But was he a prophet? Absolutely he was a prophet. But he was more than a prophet. And Hebrews 1 begins with this. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by Son. You see, there's no... There's no the Son or a Son. It is He spoke to us by Son. The triune God. The all-powerful, almighty God who had revealed Himself in many ways and in various ways through the prophets. Now He was speaking to them His last word in Son. God, the Son in their midst. The final word. The final word. Revelation in His Son. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. This is our Lord. This is our Lord. They had witnessed and heard of His mighty acts. They had witnessed some of them. They had heard some of them. I'm talking about Cleophas and now and his companion. They'd heard... Of his mighty acts. And now the familiar words of John in his epistle ring in our ears as we think of this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifest and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. We saw it. 
We handled him. We touched him. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God. One thing that was missed. One thing that was misunderstood that the Lord was about to clarify to them in no uncertain terms. And the Spirit of God would apply to their hearts so they would never forget it again. Is that the Scripture spoke that Messiah must suffer first. They overlooked that. Oh, they saw it as the suffering of of Israel. They saw it as the suffering of Jerusalem. They saw it as the suffering of the prophets. But they did not see it as the suffering of the Messiah who had come to redeem. The suffering Messiah. It was necessary that the Messiah should suffer. It was the plan and purpose of God by which redemption would come This they did not yet comprehend. They had not yet been enabled to see the fullness of what God was doing in Christ. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to stop there. Very awkward place to stop. But I want to stop there before we get into the full explanation of things, and there's something else I want to share with you as we, as we go forward next week. But I have this question. And I look at this room, and I know just about all of you, so I know the answer to this question, but I will ask it anyway. Have you believed? Have you believed that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? Have you believed? Or are you like the disciples of old who did not see and would, did not yet handle the risen Christ and would not believe the story? Ah, I believe and I trust that all of you in this room have believed in the finished work of Christ and that He died and was buried and that He rose again. And I have the witness in my heart that He lives. I have the witness in my heart and His Spirit is bearing witness with my spirit that I am and you are sons and daughters of the living God. Is that good? That's good. That's good. That we have believed all that the prophets have spoken. And we'll get into that again next week. But let's Stop here before we get into the next section, which would take us well past our time. Let's pray together. Father, we are so very thankful for our Savior. So very thankful that we know that He lives. And He is there, seated at Your right hand in glory and in power. And one day He will return. And we will see Him face to face. Oh, Father, we give You thanks that He rose again from the dead. And He showed Himself as a witness to many. Oh, Father, we give You thanks for the salvation that is now ours 
because of what he has done. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.